Good morning. I'd like to invite our friends who will be heading to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church to be dismissed at this time. Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please, turn to Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5. We're going to be running through chapter 6, verse 7 this morning as we look at the guilt offering. Leviticus chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now, if a person sins after he hears a public adoration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, and if, it doesn't, and if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an unclean cattle or the carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort his uncleanness may be, with which he becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, then he, will, and he comes to know it, he will be guilty. Or if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever matter a man uh, may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty in one of these. So it shall be that when he becomes guilty in one of these, he shall confess that he has sinned, and he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat of a sin offering, so that the priest may make an atonement on his behalf for sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. And he shall bring them to the priest, who shall offer first that which is for the sin offering, and shall nip its head at its front of its neck, but he shall not sever it. And he shall also sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. The second he shall then prepare as a burnt offering according to the ordinance. So the priest shall make an atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed, and it will be forgiven him. But if his, but if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then for his offering for that which he has sinned, he shall bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. And he shall, put, uh, shall not put oil on it, nor place uh, incense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it, as in the memorial portion, and shall offer it up in smoke on the altar. And with the offerings of the Lord by fire, it is a sin offering. So the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his sin, which he has committed from one of these, and it will be forgiven him. And then the rest shall become the priest like the grain offering. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation in silver by shekels, in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. And he shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing, and he shall add to it a fifth part and give it to the priest. And the priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and it will be forgiven him. Now, if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord uh, commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and still he shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation, for a guilt offering. And so the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error, in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, and it will be forgiven him. It is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a person sins and acts 
unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or security entrusted to him or through robbery or if he has extorted from his companions or has been found what is lost and lied about it and sworn falsely so that he uh, sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do, then it shall be that when he sins and becomes guilty, he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or uh, the deposit uh, which was entrusted to him or the lost things which he found or anything about which he swore falsely. He shall make restitution for it in full and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give to it uh, to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. And then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any of the things which he has done to incur guilt. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the privilege of your word. Father, thank you for the blessing that it is. Father, thank you for things like the picture of the guilt offering and the relationship that we are able to have both with you and with one another. Father, thank you that truly there is a way for reconciliation to take place. That people do not always have to be at odds with one another, nor do they have to be at odds with you. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we prepare to take a look at the guilt offering, the guilt offering is kind of unusual. It's, it's kind of unique in that it actually weds together a couple of the other offerings that we've seen. So if, if you were listening closely as we we're reading through that, the guilt offering is different. It's independent, but it has elements depending on what sort of guilt you've done and what sort of offering you have to make for the guilty thing that you have done whether it was intentional against your brother or unintentional in ways of your purity before God or against the holy things of God, you might have to bring a sin offering or you might have to bring a combo sin offering, burnt offering. Or you might have to bring a representative sin offering that's also reflected as a grain offering. And so that's kind of all like going on here. And so it's not that the guilt offering has one very unique way that it's supposed to be offered like all of the other offerings were that we've seen to this point. It actually takes some of the elements of the other offerings that we've already seen. The burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. We've seen some of these already. And it takes some parts of these and kind of combines them together. So I just want to throw that out there. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But... They kind of go back and forth in this particular offering. But it's a little different in the reason why it's offered. So let's talk about that for a second. So in this particular offering, there's an acknowledgement of guilt toward your neighbor or, and or guilt towards God. And there's two aspects to this offering. First, it could be intentional. You could have done something on purpose. Now, this is the first offering given in Leviticus where somebody did something wrong and they knew it and they meant to. So a story from a bazillion years ago, I believe before Amanda and I even had kids. We were at a church. I was serving in the youth ministry at this church. Uh, My wife, I think, was working with the two and three-year-olds at the time. And there was a, a scuffle between a couple of the toddlers in the toddler class. One of them hit the other kid. No, nothing like that would ever happen at Sylvania Church. But there are heathen churches out there in the world where things like this do take place. 
And so one of the kids hit the other kid. And so the teachers took the kids to the side and they asked the one kid, they said, hey, what happened? So we were playing with a toy and he wanted my toy and I didn't want to give him my toy. And so he hit me. So they walked over to the kid that did the hitting. They said, hey, tell us the story. He said, well, he was playing with a toy and he didn't want to give me his toy. So I hit him. Stories were like spot on. It was amazing. Like, rarely do you see this in life. Like, normally people are trying to self-justify and excuse and do all kinds of It's like, no, 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 I hit him. I did it on purpose. I meant to. I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. That's this offering. And friends, let's, we're laughing about it because it's a fun little story of two and three-year-olds. We do this stuff all the time. There's stuff that we know we're not supposed to do. There's, there's attitudes we know we're not supposed to have. There's ways that we know we're not supposed to be. And yet we do it anyway. We just, we just volitionally sin. We go, alright, hey, this is God's standard. Okay, cool. Slide the standard out of the way. We do what we want to do. That's, that's what happens. And so in this listing, what are some of the intentional things that people do that they know that they're not supposed to do? just want to kind of run through this quick to kind of summarize because there's a lot happening in this chapter and a part. And so uh, defrauding your neighbor in some way is in this list. So you've lied or you've cheated or whatever to get something that wasn't yours or to have something lost from them that was rightfully theirs. Whatever, you did some sort of defrauding, some sort of either lie of commission or lie of omission by leaving something out, and it was your benefit and their hurt, and you did it on purpose. You knew that's what was going to happen, so you did it on purpose. Uh, The touching of unclean things, they were pretty aware of what they were supposed to touch and not touch, and the touching of unclean things was part of this. Empty oaths. I'm going to do such and such or I'm not going to do such and such or whatever it was. And they said that whether it was for good or evil. Like the nation of Israel was serious about you following through with your oaths. So if you, you know, mindlessly said, well, that guy comes around here again, but knock a knot on his head. And then you didn't knock a knot on his head. Guess what? You're guilty. You didn't follow through with your oath. Now, you would have had to offer a different offering for knocking a knot on that guy's head because you're not supposed to do that either. But they took this very serious. And so empty oaths, you saying you're going to do something that you don't do. Monetary loss, such as robbery. Go figure. People steal stuff and they still do it today. You're not supposed to do that. Lying about discovered material possessions. You know, you're walking by. Oh, look, somebody left something here. Oh, I don't have one of those. Nine-tenths of the law. (laughs) No, not okay. Not okay. And you knew you weren't supposed to do that. You're supposed to try to find out who it belonged to. Get it back to them. That's all intentional. This offering is for things like that. But there's also an unintentional aspect to this law. And it has to do with sinning against God's holy things. So if there is some sort of thing that's been set apart for the Lord's use. And somehow you engage it inappropriately. But you didn't realize that you had engaged it inappropriately. And then it's discovered later, hey, you weren't supposed to touch that thing. You weren't supposed to eat that thing. You weren't supposed to do whatever with that thing. That's been set apart for the work of the tabernacle. That's been set apart for the worship of God. And you become aware of it. You also would offer an offering like this 
for those kinds of things. The beautiful thing about, even though it's really complex and there's a lot of moving parts to, all right, if I sinned against a person intentionally and they had monetary loss and the offering needs to look like that, or if I sinned against God unintentionally and there was no monetary loss for anybody and then it's supposed to look like that, there's a lot of moving pieces. The beautiful thing that's consistent with the guilt offering is that when it's a sin against another person, sins against other humans, after the kinds listed here, we're able to find reconciliation regardless of their economic status. The goal in this offering between people, this is what we need to glean from this. Like the underlying, there's a letter to the law and then there's a spirit of the law. We all understand how that works. The spirit of this law is reconciliation. There is something at odds between me and my neighbor. There's a brokenness of relationship. And that needs to be fixed. And in this case, it's coupled with some sort of usually possession or monetary loss on behalf of my neighbor because of the wrong that I've done. But God wants me to be right with my neighbor. And so, and so, he creates a situation where regardless of your economic status, you can be made right with your neighbor. That's a beautiful thing. Now, I've got a lot of friends in the room right now. They're being very intent, looking at me deeply, who are attorneys, personal injury attorneys. They're like, Philip, don't say anything crazy to make me not be able to do my job. So I'm not going to go there. But in God's economy, if you've wounded a neighbor in possession, he does not want the reconciliation to be so expensive that peace cannot be made. That's the point of this law. Come and make your offering. And then the restitution for it is whatever the value of it that was lost, they need to get that back plus 20%. That's the rule that God gives. They need to give that back plus 20%. That's what needs to happen. And on the offering side of it, if in order for you to achieve the reconciliation of the 20%, you have to bring a lesser offering to God. Hear me. Hear this morning how gracious God is and how much God wants reconciliation between brothers and sisters. If the restitution to your brother creates an economic strain on you, then bring, God is saying, bring a lesser offering to me. If, if in the process of getting the 20% to your brother, you can't bring a ram, instead you need to bring turtle doves, then bring me turtle doves and make right with your brother. Because you know what? God doesn't need our offering. But your brother or sister who you've defrauded might actually need that material possession to live. Hey, if you can't get by on the turtle doves, then bring me some grain. Go to the field, get a grain offering and bring that. Whatever it takes for you to be properly restored to your brother, God is telling us, I'll take less so that your brother and sister can have more. Friend, that ought to resonate really deeply with us. The overwhelming, gracious, compassionate nature of God. He looks across the spectrum of humanity and he says, I don't need your stuff. Later in the prophets, he actually says that. 
What do I care about your burnt offering and your grain offering, your peace offering? What I want you to do is to have a heart of justice and mercy and compassion toward whom? Toward your neighbor. It's almost like the prophets those thousand plus years later are like going, now we get it. It wasn't about killing all these animals in the first place. It was about a transformed heart. It's like what it says in the New Testament. How can I say that I love God whom I've not seen and hate my brother who I have seen? This is a passage about reconciliation. This is a passage about being made right in this plane. This isn't precisely, though there is some element to it, about being right with God. It's about being right with our brother and with our sister. And by the way, the scripture makes it really clear. You're not right with God if you're not right with your brother and sister. Can't say amen, say ouch. That's just how it is. If you're not right with them, you're not right with God. And so there's this offering that can be ranged from lambs to birds to grain. God's longing for peace among brothers. That's what he's longing for. Now, interestingly, because the whole series is about finding Jesus in Leviticus and seeing him in these various offerings and festivals and feasts and laws and things that we're going to be going through. I I want everybody, if you would, turn to Isaiah 53. We're going to kind of make a transition from the guilt offering towards Jesus as the guilt offering. And Isaiah 53 is a great place for us to do that. I'm going to read Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like from one whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with the rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Verse 10 being the key. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many who will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he has poured himself out to death. He was numbered with transgressors. 
yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. It says here in the Messianic Psalm, Isaiah 53, that whoever this individual is, is to offer themselves up as a guilt offering. We have the description of the guilt offering here in Leviticus chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. The emphasis there being in verse 10. What does that mean? Here's the thing. The guilt offering carries with it, with it as we have said, a number of other elements of other offerings. It carries with it the burnt offering. It carries with it the grain offering. It carries with it the sin offering. All of those things are built into the mechanism of the guilt offering. The actual offering itself is termed burnt offering, sin offering, grain offering. All of those, usually in one way or another, depending on the circumstances, are involved in the guilt offering. So there's a holistic blending together of most of the other offerings to this point found in the guilt offering. And we have seen that Jesus is all of those other offerings already. The guilt offering being a great synopsis of all of them together, which is what Jesus is. The difference being that not only does the guilt offering make you right before God, it emphatically makes you right with your neighbor. And friends, when the Messiah came, He did not hear me this morning. He did not come just to make you right with God. I'm going to let that sit a second. Because that makes some people really uncomfortable. When Christ came into this world, He did not come into this world just to make you right with God. If that's all that you get for your Christianity, that is enough. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I've offended God. I repent of my sins. I believe on Jesus. That is enough. But friend, hear me in all of the compassion and kindness that I can say to you this morning. This is not going to sound loving, but it is loving. I apologize if it doesn't come off that way. But if that is the extent of your perspective of Christianity, you have a very shallow, small, slighted version of Christianity. If, if the fullness of it is, I believed on Jesus and He saved me and I get to go to heaven when I die. That's awesome and that's great, but that's actually you just kind of stepped through the door of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And you're still sitting at the kid's table. Because Jesus did not come just to do that. He definitely came to do that. And that has to be your understanding, your reality, just to even walk through the doorway. But once you get into the doorway, there's this massive house of things that Christ has done. It's kind of like when you go to that massive banquet. They've got all this exceptionally great food to feast on. And you stop at the first table that's the kids' buffet table and they've got the chicken strips. You know how it is with your really small kids. 
Unless you have one of those really small kids that has that unusual palate. The only thing they ever want to eat is those chicken strips. It's like, dude, there is filet mignon right here. Chicken strips. Many of us are living in chicken strip Christianity. That's where we're living. Man, there's lobster tail and there's filet and there's chicken cordon bleu and there's... I don't like it, but my wife loves it, the creme brulee. I tried it again recently. I was like, mm, it's coffee and a cake. I can't, I just can't do it. I don't like coffee. Why would you mess up cake like that? But that's a whole other story for a different day. We can debate that at another time. But there's this great feast to be had. You're stuck over here with the French fries and the chicken strips. Yes, Jesus came to save your soul from sin and to make you right with God. That is not all He did, though. He came to make you holy. He came to make you at peace with yourself. He came to make it to where you can love your enemies. And He came to reconcile you to your brothers. There is a large fullness to the work that Christ has done. And by Isaiah 53 declaring that the Messiah would be a guilt offering, it's encompassing all of that. Not only have I been forgiven of my sins against God, but I've also been forgiven of my sins against man. And not only have I been reconciled to God, He has now created a pathway where I can be reconciled to my fellow man. To the point that I could even love my enemy the way that God has loved His enemies. Which I cannot do in and of my own strength. This is a remarkable thing. So I want to I take a look at Jesus as our guilt offering. So what is the chief purpose that we have seen here in Isaiah chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6? What is the chief purpose of the guilt offering? The chief purpose of the guilt offering is to make peace and restitution, not just between God and man, but between man and man. I have sinned against other people. That must be made right. And I can strive all I want to to try to make that right in and of my own strength, but it will never work until it is done through the work of Jesus Christ. There is a healing of brokenness that must happen among humanity. And friends, listen. There's absolutely no way I could have mapped out to be preaching this sermon today after the last 72-hour news cycle that we've been watching. If you don't know that there's a brokenness among humanity, there is. Men killing men for what? For what? Mothers fleeing cities with their children in their arms for what? And we could list out all the talking points that the news would give us about things like what we're seeing on the other side of the world that, by the way, happen every day, everywhere. I don't want to get lost in something in political in the middle of a sermon, but the reason we care is that it actually impacts us financially. But this goes on everywhere, every day. 
There is a brokenness among humanity. And Christ has come into the world that we might take our spears and our swords and hammer them into plowshares. That the young child might be able to sit at the den of the adder and play with the cobra and go unharmed. It's a metaphor for peace and humanity. Christ has come to take those who are at odds with each other and make them at peace with one another. That's what He has come to do. And I know it sounds trite and I know it sounds trivial. But what really ends conflict among men is not bigger bombs. It's the Gospel. That's what ends conflict. A true, transformative work in the life of Christ. Why? Because He came to do that as our guilt offering. That's what He came to do. Consider the garden. What has happened? So the blood of the sacrifices that we have seen to this point sanctifies the very ground of the place of those sacrifices from the curse. The ground now is cursed. It must be redeemed. You're being removed from a sacred space into a profane space. And now you must return and claim a sacred space that you might uh, walk in the cool of the garden of the day with God. You cannot do that in your sinful estate. There must be reconciliation between God and man. And that happens in the offerings of atonement and burnt offerings and peace offerings and all the other things that we've seen. But here and here very explicitly we have a reconciliation Reconciliation between man and man. What was broken in the garden? Yes, my relationship with God was broken in the garden. Absolutely. 100%. That is step one. But when God confronted the man, He said, Why were you hiding? Who told you you were naked? What did He say? This woman that you gave me conflict this way. He turns to the woman, the snake that you put, the serpent that you put in the garden. Conflict with creation itself. We were set in this world, it sounds blasphemous, but it only sounds blasphemous because we've not embraced the great reality of the truth of it. We were placed in this world to be the representative image of God on earth. We are image bearers. When all of creation and all other humanity would look upon itself, they should have seen the divine. And instead, instead, what is seen? Selfishness, pride, ego, self-centeredness, self-justification, greed, avarice. We could run through the list run through the list. And who does it hurt? Friends, it offends God, but it does not hurt Him. Because He's immortal, invisible, sovereign, all-powerful, incapable of being altered in His essence in any meaningful way. There's never a threat of the overthrow of God. It's offensive to Him because He gave us a great gift of image bearing and we've ruined it through our selfishness and our rebellion and our sin. But who does that hurt? It hurts us. It hurts our neighbor also made in the image of God. And it hurts the creation that we've been given the care over. 
When we were banished from the garden, who was hurt by that? Was God hurt by that? No, we were hurt by that. When the ground was cursed, did it hurt God? No, we were hurt by that. When pain and childbearing came, we were hurt by that. Sin has brought pain among humanity. And now humanity, rather than sharing the image of God with one another, shares the pain of sin with one another. That's what we do. And as such, the relationship not just between God and man has been broken, but between man and man has been broken. Apart from Christ and His transformative power, we cannot be the neighbors we ought to be. And Christ has come into this world not just to heal our broken relationship with God, but he's also come into this world as a guilt offering to heal our broken relationship between one another. And any effort to live in the gospel that only embraces one or the other is a very distorted living of the gospel. If I'm only concerned about my relationship with God, that's spiritualism. If I'm only concerned about my relationship with my neighbor, not politically or economically speaking, but that's a form of socialism. I'm only concerned about how things work in society. Friends, what is the two greatest laws? Christ summarizes it as we get ready to close. What is the great summation of the law that Christ gives to us? Love God. You shall love the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second one, what did he say? How did, what's the word Jesus uses there? The second one is what? Like it. High level of similarity. The second one is like it. You shall do what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summation of the law. And sometimes we get hung on one or the other. Sometimes we have a Christianity that's so distant from other people, so spiritualized that we don't really care what's happening in the lives of others or how our actions impact the lives of others. And sometimes we have a Christianity that's so focused on the other that we completely forget about the God who's driving us toward the picture and and, and unity of Christ and, and being conformed to His image. Friends, the fullness of what Christ has come to do is to make us right with God and to make us right with each other. That's the guilt offering. That's what it does. If I have offended God, guilt offering. If I've offended my neighbor, guilt offering. Same kind of offering given for both kinds of sin. And God in His gracious compassion in that guilt offering strips it down so far that no matter what your standing in society happens to be, you are able... To go through the process of being reconciled either to God or to people or to both. Praise be to God that Jesus Christ as our guilt offering cost even less for us than the grain does. 
Because friends, here's the deal. When Jesus Christ offered himself, as it says in Isaiah 53.10, as the guilt offering, we didn't bring the lamb, we didn't bring the birds, we didn't bring the grain. Because he was the lamb, and he was the birds, and he was the grain. Not only was he the priest, he was also the sacrifice. All we had to do was bring our guilt. Praise God. Because I can do that. I can bring my guilt. I can own my place in rebellion against God and pain against fellow man. And I can throw that down at the feet of Jesus and say, I can't do anything about this. I'm guilty. All I have to do is bring the guilt. He says, you know what? I don't have grain. I don't have birds. I don't have a lamb. I don't have a fire. I don't have an altar. I don't have a tabernacle. I've got nothing but guilt. And God says, got you covered. I've got Jesus. He'll do all that stuff for you. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is our guilt offering. And not only is he our guilt offering, he is our priest. He is our sacrifice. He is the payment. He is everything. Father, thank you that all we have to do is bring our guilt. Christ covers the rest. And thank you that when Christ does this on our behalf, he not only makes us right with you, but he creates a pathway that we might be made right with other human beings. Father, forgive us when that is not the case. Forgive us when we are not in pursuit of reconciliation. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song.